Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. So I was uh, reading a stat that the percentage of vote, vote, eligible voters in the United States is it's around close to 60% in the United States. Um, uh, and, and I looked up our curiosity in Bangladesh and it's like 80%. Why don't people vote in this country? You know what? There are a lot of reasons that people don't vote. And we've tried to break that down and tried to figure that out ourselves. Um, you know, there is a group of people who don't. And I think we should also recognize that there are a group of people who can't. So if you break that down under the don't, you know, there's apathy, um, there's frustration, there's disillusionment. You know, if you hate the two party system, you hate all the candidates, you may just uh, sit back or you just generally don't believe or don't care. Then there's also a reality that, you know, our, the system is not always set up for everybody to participate. There is disenfranchisement. There is voter suppression. There's also just a lot of confusion. And that's one of the things that at South Asians Vote we're trying to address because there is so much information out there that can be conflicting or just hard to find that we're really trying to figure, help address that piece because you hate to think that somebody really wanted to, but they just couldn't get in the door, just couldn't figure out where they were supposed to vote when they wanted to. So if you really, you have to really think about it in that way, that there is the can'ts and then there's the don'ts. And then within the don'ts, like I said, there are many reasons why some people choose not to. And so everybody has a story about why they do what, or don't do what they do. And it really, a lot of the themes do come from a frustration with particular candidates or the people who are running or just the system overall. And they just don't believe that it's set up for them. You know what? I can, my parents live in Georgia. I live in New York. I can order my dad an Uber mm-hmm. and track where they are. Um, and then I can uh, even communicate with the Uber driver and do all of these things. And I'm a couple of states away. But I tried to find out where, whether my dad was registered to vote and also some, um, you know, information about uh some other inf- information about, um, you know, polling sites and things like that. And it's so difficult to find. Yep. Yeah. Yet I can order an Uber for him, like really easy in two seconds. Um, why do you think the private sector needs to be more involved? You know, it's a good question. Actually, I've thought about that myself as, as I've gone deeper and deeper into this. And, you know, I work on the business side. I've worked for some companies that are incredibly efficient and just really good at execution. And every so often I do toy with the idea of what if this was run by people who really knew how to get that stuff done and get it really organized really well. I, I think at the, honestly, there just needs to be some better standardization. Um, I think there, I think that's one of the biggest opportunities, whether this is managed at the private or or public sector, it 
it shouldn't be so crazy and so different across states or even across counties. I was speaking to somebody at a, who works with a different organization and when as she pointed out that, you know, the reality is even at the county level, the information can be different. I think there needs to be the right people. There need to be people who are ready to try to standardize some things to actually make this accessible for more people overall and make this more streamlined and less confusing. This is a, we're talking about a federal election and something that was granted to us by, by the U S constitution. But when you go so, when it gets so confusing at such a granular level, there's definitely a disconnect. If that is being managed by a private institution Here's hoping they could do a better job, but regardless, I think it just needs to be managed. It needs there needs to be some better decisions and clarity that's standardized and done by good people. But do you think the numbers coming out of let's say Bangladesh, uh, mm-hmm. which like they said is eighty percent, do you think that's accurate, or do you think a lot of that is just fake numbers or fake news? <laughs> um, you know, it's a good question. Um, you know, there are there is. There are conflicting teams on, you know, if numbers that do come from the subcontinent, how real are they or how accurate are they? I would love to believe that they are real. I know in India, the participation rate has been increasing as well. Same with Pakistan and some other countries. And I would love to believe that 80%, I will admit those sound very high, but I would believe that it is increasing. I, I based on what I've been able to tell both with conversations with my family it, it, back in, in South Asia, as well as just through media, you can tell that there is a shift in energy and um, kind of a decrease in that apathy that we were talking about. You, uh, so your, your family's from Kolkata. Were you born there or were you born here? I was born here. So I'm, I was born and raised in the Midwest, um, but my family is from West Bengal. And, um, so West Bengal, sorry. And um, where it, was your family always interested uh, or push you toward, did they push you toward being involved in community or organizing or, or politics in general? So it's actually an interesting kind of long story. Um, directly speaking, I would say, you know, my parents never said, oh, you should absolutely get in politics or anything like that. My, neither of my parents or in politics, they both work in the private sector. But, um, you know, I, I'd like to think I do come from a line of civically involved people. Um, my, my maternal grandfather, he, my dadu, he was, he was just a very civically minded person. He was probably one of the first people who generally taught me about what it means to you know, really care about what's going on and just have a, it was, you know, he was a disciple of Rabbi Nanat Tagore. And mm. um, it just, he really, that was, he wanted to really instill a lot of those values into me. Um, and then with my paternal grandfather, it's actually a very interesting story. So um, he was, he was born in Dhaka actually. And when he was a teenager, he was recruited by the Anushilam Samati. And so, um, you know, he was very engaged with the, with the um, 
basically with the movement back in the early, very early 1900s. And I actually, I never actually met my paternal grandfather, but my, my dad is really proud of me and he likes to cite that some of my passion comes from my grandfather's passion and the work that he, he did back when he was younger. Uh, is there, um, if I find relationships with uh, grandparents, especially that are not allowed to be really interesting that, so I, I you noticed that I, um, but it's probably passed along, even though your parents aren't in the public sector, maybe a conversation or even just hearing about his passion for things, even though he doesn't work in that. Do you think that some of that rubbed off on you? I think so. Actually, my dad, he, like my, my father, he always, he'll say it himself. He's a news junkie. He, yeah. even when I was a kid and I hated it because I wanted to watch cartoons and he's taking over the TV to watch the news. Um, over time that somehow did trickle into me and now I'm a news junkie. Absolutely. And I think just an overall, you know, my parents, if nothing else, they always instilled that, you, you know, your world is bigger than yourself and just like the neighborhood you grew up in and that you need to care. Those were just some basic principles that my parents really instilled and caring can look like many different things, but if you have the capability to do something more, certainly do it. You know, those are, I, I always thought of that as just such basic, um, basic things that my parents would tell me and expect of me. And then as I got older, I realized, I guess that isn't necessarily a universal value. And I think I value that even more so knowing that, okay, they did push that on me in a, in a way that wasn't, you know, it was organic and it made sense. So now you're the co-founder of uh, South Asians Vote. Tell us about uh, the organization and what's the uh, genesis for starting it. Yeah, so we started South Asians Vote very recently, just actually a couple months ago now officially. And um, it really started from a place of, you know, coming into this election cycle and wanting to do something, wanting to know that we, as individuals, did what we could to make an impact on the election. We saw the, you know, we've heard about the numbers, the, the participation rate in this country being as low as it is. Within the South Asian community, you know, it was estimated that about a million South Asians did not vote in 2016 and did not participate. And that, again, could be for whatever reason. But we realized, well, maybe that's the opportunity. And so that was really the genesis of it. And what we do is we are a fully nonpartisan, not-for-profit, um, basically grassroots organization, really founded on digital platforms and wanting to really get out the vote through these digital platforms, through a very digitally savvy and engaged younger base. So, um, you know, there, you know, we see that millennials and Gen Zers are so involved and so much more vocal through these digital platforms that if we want to, if you want to bring that message back also through, through the older generation, this is a great way to do that. So we are, you know, we have a website, which is a South Asians where we've created a lot. We've pulled together a lot of different tools and information, make it easy for people to register to vote right there. And then within a few minutes, and make it easy for that message to proliferate kind of naturally within what's now been deemed as relational activism. Um, 
which is really as simple as talking to your friends and talking to your family and just empowering South Asians, young and old, to do exactly that. How are you targeting, uh, or I'm assuming you're targeting uh, areas that are more important because they're swing states or are not, um, you know, uh, the probability is not as high as going to one particular party. So I'm not saying New York, obviously New York is is important, everybody should go vote. How are you, uh, or are you focusing on some of these other places where it's really important for people to go out and vote? Yeah, so we are... Targeting is kind of a, it's a tricky word because we aren't necessarily favoring, but we are certainly paying attention and trying to find ways to make inroads in certain states. You know, so it, it's a mix of what are the swing and purple states, as well as what are the states that have a high portion of South Asians. So you look at, if you think about a state like Illinois like California, um, Texas especially has been really interesting. And one of the best ways we realized we could potentially reach these and just kind of speak even a little more closely to these regions is actually finding partner organizations there. And that can take many forms. That can be political organizations and partisan organizations. It can also be just community organizations, kind of like, you know, Bengalis of New York is not a political organization. You are serving the community. And so finding organizations and like that that serve a community in some in a place in a region like Texas where there's such a huge South Asian population that could make a difference in this next election. Really trying to partner with them, finding out what is helpful information for that region and pushing out that that those tools both to our following, but also just making sure we have tools available for those community partners. You know, um, what we're finding with these organizations is they would love to do more in the realm of this civic engagement space, but since the resources are tough and if we're doing that work anyways, let's just make sure they we can share those resources with them. No, so you're, but this isn't your full-time job, obviously. You also have a day job. Um, how are you managing that? And and I ask this to everyone that has a side hobby or a passion project or a an organization they started in addition to their job is how is there anything that you're you've learned in your day job that you're able to apply to to this passion project? Um, and and I, yeah, and also just how are you managing? I'm always fascinated by people that can do so much. Yeah. So as far as what I've been able to apply, I actually absolutely do. So um, and I think that's one of the most valuable things that a person can bring to any kind of side hustle or volunteer community role is, you know, if especially if bandwidth is a concern, think about what you're good at and however you become good at that and double down there. So for example, with South Asians Vote, I, you know, I work in marketing. My career has always been in marketing so what I do with South Asians Vote is really in the content and marketing arena. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself a salesperson. So something like, um, you know, development or outreach in that sense would not be right for me. But we have folks on our team who are great at that. And so that in itself is really valuable. And just from prior experience with other nonprofits, if for anybody who is trying to figure out how to navigate that, I would absolutely recommend that. You'd have no idea how many nonprofits 
and volunteer organizations are looking for skill-based volunteers to help their them manage um, operations and just be better and do better. And that can be at the board level, that can be on a committee level. Um, it can be something, it can span from graphic design to accounting and financial expertise to to sales and marketing and community outreach. So I'd absolutely recommend that to anybody who is trying to figure that out because I know that has absolutely served me very well. And then also what's nice too is because this isn't my full-time job, it gives me a chance to try to learn a little more about myself and try something new, right? So I don't consider myself a graphic design expert, but you know, because we are, you know, we are a very lean and agile team. So sometimes I have to try to play around with some graphics to get something on social media really quickly. And I find that yeah. sometimes I like it. So there, it's, I've just honestly just been using Canva. <laughs> um, I love Canva. We yeah. love Canva. Yeah. Yeah. It, it works so well and it's it's nice to play around with. And um, it's a great way to just kind of branch any of those skills that I think I could have and do a little more of that. Yeah, I, 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 I so agree with you. It's so interesting. Today I had an interesting experience. I just started working for a large bank and it's a, it's a compliance, a legal and compliance role. But all day today, I was actually asked to use my Excel skills, which I for a long time like did not want to. You know, once you get, once you, you know, become more experienced, you kind of don't want to be pigeonholed and be like the Excel guy as you get senior and so I, I, you know, I kept it under the rug for a long time, but here it just came out. My, someone said, Oh, Cam's good at Excel. And it, so that's what I did for the whole day today is just put, put like, just automate a lot of these, you know, manual Excel spreadsheets. So it's interesting because you never know what sort of skill set is needed, you know, at, where, at, where, you know, wherever time or place that you are. Absolutely. So you never know Canva, maybe, <laughs> um, so it'll come in handy someday, you know, in a big work project that they're like, oh my God, you know, marketing is busy. We need to get this graphic done. Let's get around the need to do a Canva. Yep. Yeah. And then um, I'm kind of thinking back to your other question too about just managing time, which is, it is a very important question. Sometimes I'd argue that, you know, I, I'll be frank and say I'm not great at it because I, you know, nobody is perfect. I don't, I'd be surprised if anybody can truly say they've mastered that fully because life happens, right? Um, and no matter how well in, you try to stick to a schedule, something can always come up. Um, what I will say is, you know, for me, um, physical bandwidth and kind of that mental and passion bandwidth are two very different things. And while you know there are only 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, I'm able to, I've found that when I'm working on something that is, I'm really passionate about, my energy just expands so much further. And I can honestly say that working with South Asians Vote has actually given me energy rather than deplete it, which I think is extremely important. And so if people are trying to figure out, you know, if a side project or a side hustle is right for them. I always say that that is a good test to see if it's giving you energy rather than just draining you of it. And then I'm also, you know, really fortunate. I have a very supportive husband who helps, um, who helps me make sure that I'm not dropping the ball on both, you know, 
my work on South Asians Vote, but also having a bit of a personal life and being able to relax and just get some time. Um, you know, so having a good support system also makes such a big difference. Um, so you brought up your husband and uh, it doesn't have to be specifically him, but I, I'm curious about what sort of advice you would have for families who have different political uh, viewpoints. Yeah. I find this, you know, let's be frank, most, uh, most uh, I guess, South Asians are tend to be more left-leaning, um, but I've seen families, you know, have huge quarrels because, you know, one, one, one person's uh, more conservative. And I'm curious about what sort of advice that you would have, for, you know, to deal with that. It's really interesting, um, you know, it re- and just kind of that observation of South Asians being left-leaning versus right-leaning, um, you know, it's, it varies so much depending on your perspective and who, what your circle looks like. So, you know, a, probably a very common stereotype or perspective is especially Bengalis tend to be perceived as being a more progressive bunch, but you would be surprised at how many are, you know, are kind of in that purple, moderate purple group or even a bit more conservative. And then, you know, there are, there are South Asian cultures that do lean especially more conservative and, um, that can, like, as you mentioned, that can be within even a, a single family. And, what I have learned, and this came up a lot, especially from my own perspective with, um, you know, back in June and what was happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. And when you're talking to people in your life who do have that perspective, just it's really important to, the, to acknowledge and respect that that perspective didn't just come from anywhere. It's usually built and founded on something that can be off of a personal experience, that can be off of what you were taught by older generations. Now, whether that's right or wrong or an excuse, that's not the point. But having being able to navigate those conversations with the mutual understanding that we all have an opinion that has a value is really the biggest first step. Um, because if you don't do that, that's when you get into shouting matches around the dinner table. That's when, um, you know, you get into lengthy WhatsApp arguments, um, which tends to happen a lot, I know. Um, and it just goes nowhere. So I always recommend that. And then I recommend just the other piece too, is especially if there is an issue that you especially care about, you know, if you're talking to people who love you and if you make that issue personal, if you bring it back home, it makes it much more easier to relate to. It makes it makes it much more relatable conversation. So if it is something like race relations and you're trying to navigate that conversation in your home, you know, making that personal and talking about, well, you know what, if I, as a South Asian brown woman were to be stopped on the street by the police, these are the things that could possibly happen because those really race relations aren't just exclusive to the black community. You know, bringing that to your family has such a different impact than just talking about it, about people who aren't at home. And so that's the other piece too, is if you have something that you truly care about, if there's an issue that you want to talk about at home, bring it home because that's a great way to kind of show the impact just that much more. 
Um, yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, yeah, and and I think I think I think for some people, um, even me, I think I think I think the confusion is that if let's say someone that you're very close with pretty much grew up the same way, but then they have a different viewpoint. I think that's what confuses people. It's like, well, we're from the same neighborhood. We grew up the exact same way, but you have a different viewpoint. Do you know what I mean? I think that's what sort of puts people in a point where, well, I don't understand why you think that way. I mean, because you can, you can kind of understand how I grew up, let's say, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, someone in Idaho um, has a different perspective on immigration, right? But when it's someone that grew up in the same bedroom as you, that's a little bit different. And sometimes you just have to ask the question. It's, that's yeah. absolutely valid, right? And sometimes you actually have to ask, hey, what is it that brought you to this point of view? And it could be those things that you didn't, that we don't always see or talk about. Yeah. And it could be so subtle that until it's even asked, maybe that person doesn't even realize it. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, conversations need to be had. I mean, this is a separate note, but we just uh, we're talking on a day that Trump just got diagnosed with COVID. What are you? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, you know, this has been it's been an interesting week. <laughs> in all honesty, if we just think about what just the last what's been transpiring over the last few days and culminating into today, um, and with the announcement today, you know, you, I. My personal politics aside, I obviously don't wish ill on anybody um, when it comes to their health. And so certainly hope that, you know, the the entire family and everybody impacted does recover. I, I do hope that this will bring a shift in perspective to the group of people that were kind of denying or in denial about the impact of COVID-19. Um, because, you know, this just clearly shows how serious you need to take this. Somebody who has, who is one of the most powerful people in the world who has access to the resources, all kinds of resources of protection, just got sick, right? So what does that mean for somebody who's in, uh, who's working class, who has had to go to work almost every day because, you know, they're, they just need to, and you're surrounded by people who don't take it seriously and could be getting sick as well. Um, so I really hope that just, it just drives home the importance of it. So I'm from Minnesota originally. And what was interesting is, you know, he was actually just in Minnesota over the last couple mm. of days for the rally in Minnesota. So now I'm wondering what does this mean in Minnesota, especially for those people that attended the rally, because, you know, with, a lot of the rallies that you at least do see on the news that people aren't wearing masks, they aren't really separated and it, you get worried. Uh, you get worried anytime you see something like that. Again, you don't wish these anybody to get sick, but this seems like rife opportunity for that to happen. <laughs> and so my hope is there's a quick shift in perspective and people finally understand what why we need to take this seriously yeah i certainly hope so you know one thing is i don't know if we'll ever have you tell me what you think we'll ever have a time with where politics is this entertaining <laughs> i don't know if like you know these uh the ratings uh for these debates are astronomical compared to i don't know doe versus clinton right i mean 
it's it's uh it's entertaining. I don't. I wonder if it'll ever be this entertaining. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. You're right. I think um, for better or for worse, this is possibly from at least that in entertainment perspective, the most engagement um, we've seen when it comes to things of like just topics of politics. There is now, obviously, you know, we're in a culture that's full of memes and full of other ways to also make things entertaining as well. And I don't know if it's good or bad at this point, but if it means that, um, you know, people are engaging at least, or at least starting to pay attention, maybe that is a good thing. I'd say, you know, like we talked about before about people potentially just not caring or not wanting to just get involved or just ignoring it altogether. If this curbs that, then maybe there's that means something better for the future. Yeah, and I I think some of the policies from the Trump administration uh, specifically definitely cause a lot of individuals and groups to really speak out and also just be formed. I know I had a number of um, candidates uh, that were running for office in New York, and almost all of them cited Trump as the reason for wanting to run. So. I, you know, so that's fascinating. All these groups too. I, I mean, obviously that um, you're you're bipartisan, but there's so many organizations that are sprouted because of um, you know their perceived uh, you know reaction their reactions to Trump, some of uh, the president's policies. Absolutely, and actually, that's that's a great point too. I I know in the New York area, there's been this great um, surgence of. Bengalis getting active either in official roles or, you know, community-based roles, which is always exciting to see. I know I never thought that existed when I was younger. So if that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great for both like the short term as, as well as long term and, you know, future generations to be able to see. And just within the South Asian diaspora as well, you see a lot of different organizations popping up, a lot of them partisan and or region based, but I think it's, it's a really good step because it's <clears throat> it's bringing it, like I said, it's just bringing these issues back home to our community. I think one reason why, one, one possible reason why some people weren't ever that active or engaged once upon a time is because, you know, there was this idea of us versus them, that American politics are an American thing and we're immigrants, we're this isn't necessarily truly our home yet, so why should we get involved or why should we make noise? I think that perspective is shifting in a great way. We're, we're making noise in the right way where you know, the number of especially immigrant or first-gen women in politics is so inspiring to me to see. And be there. I know they're becoming role models for a younger generation as well, and I think that's so great. Really curious about your thoughts on the um, the electoral college system. I, as somebody that follows more politics politics more than I do, I'm curious yeah. about what you think. Is it an effective way to, um, you know, uh, have an election? Uh, personally, I don't think so. I I I personally think it's outdated. I these are this is one of those things where once upon a time it could have it probably made sense at the time it was founded, but we. <laughs> we need to remind ourselves and we kind of need to be ready to become a true democracy. Um, you know, certain policies and or 
kind of just overall conversations make it feel like sometimes this country is going in a different direction. But, um, you know, if it's removing the electoral college altogether and turning into a pure popular vote, whatever that solution is, I think we need to allow voices to be heard. In reality, when you kind of going back to what we were talking about, about apathy or why people don't vote, you know, a lot of people just assume, oh, I'm in a blue state. It's going to turn yeah. blue anyways. So why does Absolutely. it matter in a red yep. state? And I think if you remove the Electoral College, that is a great step because now people will understand that their vote actually counts. So that, I think, will make such a big difference if we are able to either remove it altogether and go straight popular or figure out a solution that still accomplishes everybody feeling like their vote counts. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, have you heard of any other alternatives other than just going purely popular vote that you think would be effective? Um, I admittedly don't necessarily, I can't say that I know of any. I personally have been in the camp of the popular vote. There's also, there are other um, balloting and voting alternatives that, you know, are that they sometimes happen at the regional level where if you think consider like a rank choice yeah ballot that's what i was getting at yep yeah, think about a rank choice ballot that's an alternative it isn't necessarily the alternative to just the popular counting vote but it is an yep. alternative to people feeling pigeonholed into a two-party system yep. um and a two a two-candidate system which has its merits frankly i think it gives people the opportunity to actually put their own intersectional decisions on paper, mm -hmm. right? Everybody mm -hmm. has different perspectives. And if you get to actually lay that out on paper, it gives people a chance to feel like, oh, my, all of my ideas were actually counted. So that there is an opportunity there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the future for South Asians vote? I know we talked about last time you're filing for a nonprofit 501c3 status. What else is going on for the, for the future? I mean, even beyond this election. You know, that's, I mean, you kind of nailed it. Um, the The biggest question that we always get is, you know, is this something that ends on November 4th? And I don't think that it necessarily should. I think there's actually a lot of opportunity for us to continue South Asians vote well beyond what happens on November 4th. Um, obviously, you know, come November 4th, there's going to be a handful of people who are unhappy with the outcome. You know, that's obviously just generally going to be unavoidable at this point, given how divided the country is. Um, but we have an opportunity to continue engagement after that, you know, rather than just people feeling like, okay, this is finally done. So burnt out from it. I don't even want to talk about politics or talk about what happens in the, in the world anymore. We want to make it more accessible for people to continue to talk about what is happening again outside of their neighborhood and outside of their home and so what as part of our mission we really framed it as you know empowering people of south asian descent of all immigration status and the status in general in their overall civic journey and that includes voting but that also can include the path to becoming a civically engaged immigrant and you know maybe that is somebody running for office one day or somebody just getting better under better interested in politics there are so many opportunities there and just in general with 
the, what I'd say is just this overall movement of South Asian organizations in politics. Um, my hope is at some point, if it's, if it's before the election or after the election, we can start to come together and kind of unify our efforts a little more towards an opportunity that is low hanging fruit or two really. That is data because the data around South Asians in general kind of sucks. It's very disparate. It's, um, you know, it's, we, you, you have different organizations like Pew, like AAPI, who are collecting data of various forms, but very little to no organizations exist right now who are actually creating a nuanced, or sorry, a full nuanced database of research around South Asians. And that's such an important step that I would love to see change in the future. And then general outreach, because as we've, you know, we've talked about in the future, in the past, you know, South Asians and Asians in general don't necessarily feel like they've been spoken to by elected officials. And I think we can absolutely address that. And this is a, my hope is an organization like South Asians Vote can help bridge that gap between the people who should be listening and the people who want to be listened to. Yeah, I, you know, it's happening. I think where our voices are starting to get heard, I mean, we're, we are, I mean, tiny, we're, Bernie's a tiny organization, but we just, uh, Grace Meng's people reached out to us and they want to speak to us, um, okay. which is like, you know, she's a Congress, sitting congresswoman um, and shows that, you know, they know, they were at least aware of, uh, started the number of, of folks in, in, in her. She's, she's a congressman for Flushing and other parts of Queens. Because I think for a long time, we were just bucketed under uh, Indians. Um, yeah. And or, I mean, or even just Indians are bucketed under Asians, right? It's like, so you could just keep, you could go, keep going up um, like this pyramid. So I think, yeah, I think it, it's, it does help. Um, I mean, we are, we're all, this, we have a lot of the same issues that we want to we address, but some of, the, some of them are different. Yeah. So I think it's important that they know, like the difference between, um, and even look, and I fall into that category too, like the difference between an Indian Bengali and a Bangladeshi Bengali and just found out there's Pakistani Bengalis. I mean, these are things that, I mean, we, we try to do a better job of just raising awareness too, but then it's, the next step is to re- make sure that other people um, you know about us. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, um, the, that's what the future looks like, really. Yeah. What else? Um, any other important uh, bits of information we need to know? Obviously, so it's, it's the second today, but we'll, we'll, the registration is on the ninth for uh, to vote. Um, anything else people should know? No. So, like you said, the deadline for New York State to register to vote online, in person, or via mail is. October 9th. And what I would recommend is nobody should wait until then. Absolutely try to get that done as soon as possible because there is a reality of a backlog. Even I personally had to do a change of address and I, it took about two months for me to actually get that updated fully and see that reflected in the system. And so I would absolutely make, want to recommend that everybody does that. You can do that through our website, through southasiansvote.com. We have all those tools embedded into Great. our site, which is, yeah, we want to be as helpful there. Um, and, but also, you know, if, if online isn't the best resource for you, then just, yeah, make sure you get in person to your county, uh, county election office. I believe they're open in, they're open normal weekday hours. So 
try to make that happen as soon as possible. And then also double checking and making sure that it's there. I had to check several times and there I know people who've had to update their name because they realized their name was spelled wrong. And you just, you don't want anybody to be kept from the polls for silly things like that. And then what I'd say too is if you are, we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for more engagement from the community. And if anybody would like to get involved, we'd be happy to have them. We are a fully volunteer run group and, you know, everybody has a skill that they can bring, whether they realize that or not. And we're happy to have more people to help with our cause. And that can take so many different forms. So we'd love to have them. Great. Well, we've been sharing some of your stuff and uh, we'll continue to do so. And we'd love for you to come back. Awesome. I, I mean, I would love to as well. And thank you guys so much. Um, Bengalis of New York, I honestly, I didn't even know that you guys had existed until about a year ago. And I've been in New York for four years. So or maybe not a year ago, but just a few months ago. And um, it's great to see that there are there are these groups that do exist to serve our community. Um, you know, growing up, I I knew I was being I knew I was Indian and I knew I was Bengali. It took a while to understand the nuances of both of those growing up and to know what that meant to me. And the fact that there are organizations and resources and just people out there to whom you can relate to and talk to about that is so valuable. I, I can't say how valuable that is. Yeah, representation is, is really important. Like, like you know, and one of, even just for people wanting to, let's say, run for local office, just to seeing that there's been others that have run, even if they didn't win, they, they, they were able to do it. Um, it's one of the reasons we, why we started it, and that's one of the main reasons. So, yep, great. And we'll have you on. So, uh, great talking to you. Great. Thanks so much. Pat, the red and green I beat is always in my heart I, I do it for my people, always in my thoughts I gotta be honest, with diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah, Bengali's in New York All over the world, uh, it's the bony show uh, hey, Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit to the gangs we with It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we